Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I'm trying to free your mind, Neo. But I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through it. Welcome everyone to the Origins Podcast. This is your host Paul and this is episode 120. This show is entitled The Epic Struggle to Tunnel Under the Thames. Despite major oil fines off Brazil's coast, new fields in North Dakota and ongoing increases in the conversion of tar sands to oil in Canada, fresh soils of petroleum are only just enough to offset the production decline from older fields. At best, the world is now living off an oil plateau, roughly 75 million barrels of oil produced each and every day since at least 2005 according to a new comment published in Nature on January 26. That is, a year earlier than estimated by the International Energy Agency and Energy Cartel for oil-consuming nations. From the www.livescience.com, an article by David Biello. Has the era of easy oil ended? To support our modern lifestyles, from cars to plastics, the world has used more than one trillion barrels of oil to date. Another trillion lie underground waiting to be tapped, but given the locations of the remaining oil, getting the next trillion is likely to cost a lot more than the previous trillion. The supply of cheap oil has plateaued, argues chemist David King, director of the Smith School of Enterprise in the Environment at the University of Oxford and former chief scientific advisor to the UK government. The global economy is severely knocked by oil prices of $100 per barrel or more, creating economic downturn and preventing economic recovery. Nor do King and his co-author, oceanographer James Murray of the University of Washington in Seattle, hold out much hope for future discoveries. The geologists know where the source rocks are and where the trap structures are, Murray notes. If there was a prospect for a new giant oil field, I think we would have found it. King and Murray base their conclusion on an analysis of oil data from the US Energy Information Administration. Looking at use and production trends, the two note that since 2005, production has remained essentially unchanged, whereas prices have fluctuated wildly. This suggests to the authors that there is no longer any spare capacity to respond to increases in demand, whether it results from political unrest that cuts supply, as in the case of Libya's political upheaval last year, or economic boom times in growing countries like China. We are not running out of oil, but we are running out of oil that can be produced easily and cheaply, King and Murray wrote. Other statistics, however, argue against a plateau. Oil company BP found in its most recent analysis that oil production was actually more than 82 million barrels per day in 2010, higher than the proposed plateau of 75 million. That difference may be the result of the increasing use of unconventionals, Canadian tar sands or the natural gas liquids co-produced with oil extraction, 
rising production in the China, Nigeria, Russia and the US also hints that technological improvements may allow greater production from existing fields than the new research suggests. Plus, the price of oil may argue against any such plateau. Adjusted for inflation, today's $100 per barrel is roughly equivalent to prices in 1981, according to environmental scientist Vaclav Smil of the University of Manitoba. Smil also notes that in the last 20 years, enough oil has been found to satisfy the demands of two new consumers, China and India, nations that now import more oil than is consumed by Germany and Japan. Some of that price stability is the result of increased efficiency, the potentially vast reserve of unused oil. The US and other developed countries have maintained economic growth while reducing the amount of oil and other energy required for that growth, although some of this apparent efficiency has come from outsourcing energy-intensive economic activity such as steel production. We have about halved oil intensity since 1981, Smill argues. We could halve it again, so we could do with so much less oil. Why should we panic about producing less, even if that were the case? If King and Murray are correct about 2005, marking the end of easily extracted oil, however, then Smill's additional halving of demand, plus conservation, and a rapid deployment of alternative energy would be required to avoid even more economically painful oil price shocks in the future. As it is, the US spent more than $490 billion on gasoline in 2011, $100 billion more than in 2010, even though the number of miles driven was similar, according to data from the New America Foundation. An easy oil plateau is not good news for the climate either. Harder to extract oil means increased burning of dirtier oil like that from the tar sands, or even dirtier coal. In fact, there are trillions more barrel of carbon-intensive fuel out there in the form of huge coal fields, such as the one currently being brought into production in Mongolia. There will still be enough carbon dioxide produced to result in significant climate warming, Murray notes. Even with large supplies of coal and natural gas, the world faces a potential energy shortfall. One reason that the US Department of Energy suggested in a 25 report that a crash program to cope with any decline in oil supplies be instituted. The report argued this program should start 20 years before peak global production to avoid extreme economic hardship. That's because it will take decades for any kind of energy transition to occur, as evidenced by past shifts such as from wood to coal or coal to oil. In fact, King and Murray argue that global economic growth itself may be impossible without a concurrent growth in energy supply, that is, more abundant fossil fuels to date. We need to decouple economic growth from fossil fuel dependence, King adds. This is not happening due to industrial, infrastructural, political and human behavioural inertia. We are stuck in our ways. story the last one was. Now to something a little brighter. From the bbc.co.uk website, an article by Victoria Gill. A Suriname team finds 46 new species in tropical rainforests. An expedition to a tiny South American country has revealed more than 40 species that scientists believe to be new to science. The expedition to the pristine tropical forests of Suriname was led by the charity Conservation International. 
the collaboration between scientists, indigenous people and students recorded 1,300 species in total. The team is now working to confirm which of these weird and wonderful creatures are newly discovered species. Among those they believe to be new to science are the cowboy frog, an amphibian with white fringes along its legs, and a spur-like structure on its heel. Another colourful addition to the scientific record is a cricket, or katydid, that has been named the Crayola katydid because of its bright coloration. One of the new finds, an armoured catfish that has bony plates covered with spines all over its body to defend itself from the giant piranhas that inhabit the same waters, was almost eaten by one of the expedition guides. Fortunately, before the guide had a chance to tuck in, the scientists noted the fish's unique characteristics and preserved it as a specimen. The three-week project was part of Conservation International's ongoing Rapid Assessment Program, or the RAP, which has been in progress for more than 20 years. RAP Director Dr Trond Larsen explained why this area of Suriname was so special. As you fly into the area, you travel for hundreds of miles and often don't see a single road, just continuous forest, he told BBC Nature. It's one of the last places in the world where you can find that wilderness. Dr Larson pointed out that conservationists often focused on places that were already on the brink. We take these wildernesses for granted, he told BBC Nature. But unless we focus on them now, they won't be like that for long. The team have already helped the local people to designate an area of the forest as a no-take zone. The eventual plan is for this area to become a small nature reserve. This could safeguard native wildlife, ensuring that indigenous people are able to hunt sustainably, as well as encouraging ecotourism. From the www.worddetective.com Cowlick Interesting word because my 29 year old son actually has one of these Not that you'd notice, he's in the navy and keeps his hair very very closely cropped But when it's longer, a very pronounced cowlick on the front of his head So I found this article quite interesting Dear Word Detective I've always wondered about the word cowlick for the swirl of hair why cowlick instead of some other animal? Does it have a name in other languages? Are they equally evocative? I have a great mental picture of newborn babies being presented to cows for an inaugural hair combing. What do non-English speaking babies get? And this question was posed by Lisa Wright. That's an interesting question, but your last sentence puzzled me a bit. Aren't most newborn babies nearly devoid of hair? And I'm not sure there's any such thing as an English-speaking baby outside of those horrible look-who's-talking movies and even the more obnoxious e-trade commercials. But I'm told I often take things too literally. Onward. A cowlick is a lock or tuft of hair on a person's head that doesn't behave like the rest of the hair, refusing to lie flat and sometimes even growing in the opposite direction from the rest of the hair. You know, having typed that definition, I'm now wondering how long it's going to be before Big Pharma decides that a cowlick is a symptom of oppositional follicle disorder and starts marketing a drug to cure it. Dang nabbit, when I was a kid, we'd just slap some 10W30 on it and it'd be good for a month. The first appearance of cowlick in print found so far was way back in 1598. The locks or plain feeks of hair called cowlicks are made turning upwards. A feek is a dangling lock of hair. The cowlick is so called because the disruptive lock is said to look as if it's been produced by a lick from a passing cow. 
It's also commonly called a calf lick, but in that case it may be a reference to the effect of a calf's coat on grooming by mama cow. I suppose animals other than cows might lick one's head and create, say, a dog lick or tiger lick, but cows are considered benevolent and safe as large animals go, so cows it was. According to the hair websites I've visited in my rigorous research, most cow licks are a product of conflict in the wall, a sort of traffic circle on top of one's head where the hair meets and decides how to grow. In some people the wall runs clockwise, in others counterclockwise, and still others have two walls which run in opposite directions, producing ginormous cowlicks and ruining their lives. Incidentally, it is very important to part your hair on the proper side so as not to create conflict atop your head. I have always parted my hair on the right, for instance, and most men part theirs on the left. And over the years, many men have told me I'm doing it wrong. But I've never had a cowlick problem, and most of those guys don't have any hair left at all. So I guess I win. Apparently the French term for cowlick is Monsieur sur le front, meaning literally wick in the front. Though one source I found says une épée, an ear of corn is also used. In German it's Einwirbel, vortex or whirl. In Spanish, chavito, méchant for tuft, or remolino, swirl. In Danish, and pardon my Danish here, it's hverli irrit, literally whirl in the hair. In Afrikaans, it's kaif, meaning crest. In Polish, kosmic, meaning strand. Uh, sorry if you can speak those languages, I didn't do a very good job with many of those. Full disclosure. Several of these came from dictionaries and translation sites for languages in which I am not fluent. So there's a good chance that I've missed some colourful colloquial terms, every bit as weird as our cowlick. But I didn't find any farm animals messing up folks' hair in other languages. George Washington may have been America's first president, but was he nearly America's first zombie-in-chief? If William Thornton, physician and designer of the US Capitol, had had his way, Washington's body would have been subjected to a scientific experiment designed to bring the deceased president back to life. From the io9.com website, an article by Lauren Davis. The Capitol architect wanted to reanimate George Washington's dead body. In December 1799, 67-year-old George Washington took a ride through the wet winter rain and shortly afterward developed a fever and a sore throat. When his condition became so bad that Washington could no longer swallow the concoctions of vinegar, molasses and butter with which he was trying to treat himself, Washington called in his livestock and slave overseer, who drained three quarters of a pint of blood from the ailing man. When bleeding failed to have the desired effect, three physicians were called in, all of whom recommended emetics and, you guessed it, more blood to be drawn. Over the brief course of his treatment, Washington's stomach and bowels were repeatedly evacuated, and the puncture-happy docks took nearly two and a half litres of blood. Just two days after that fateful morning ride, Washington closed his eyes for the final time, after telling his doctors, I die hard, but I'm not afraid to go. But Washington's body was not buried immediately after his death. The President may not have feared death, but he did fear being buried alive. Before he died, he commanded his secretary, Tobias Lear, to make sure that he would not be entombed less than three days after he died. In accordance with Washington's wishes, his body was put on ice until it could be moved to the family vault. 
that's where the story gets a little strange. The morning after Washington died, his step-granddaughter, Elizabeth Law, arrived with a family friend, William Thornton. History best remembers Thornton as the architect who created the original design for the Capitol building, but he was also a trained physician, having studied at the University of Edinburgh. Although he did not practice medicine for much of his life, Thornton always had a keen interest in the workings of the human body, and he suggested a novel method for resurrecting the fallen warrior. Thornton told Washington's wife Martha that he wanted to thaw Washington's body by the fire and have it rubbed vigorously with blankets. Then he planned to perform a tracheotomy so he could insert a bellows into Washington's throat and pump his lungs full of air and finally to give Washington an infusion of lamb's blood. Friends and family declined Thornton's mad scientist offer, not because they thought his solution impossible, but because they felt the nation's first president should rest in peace. So what gave Thornton the idea to play Dr Frankenstein? Susan E. Lederer, author of the book Flesh and Blood, Organ Transplantation and Blood Transfusion in 20th Century America, notes that many physicians in the late 18th century believed that lamb's blood had special properties and believes Thornton meant to give Washington's circulatory system a spark of vitality that might jolt him back to life. But Paul Schmidt in his article Forgotten Transfusion History, John Leacock of Barbados, published in the British Medical Journal, suggests that the University of Edinburgh may have been on the forefront of transfusion research, unless you count all those transfusion experiments in 17th century France. Thornton wasn't the only Edinburgh alum thinking about blood transfusions during that time period. Philip Singh Fysik, an earlier Edinburgh grad, who incidentally practised in Philadelphia, where Thornton himself briefly practised medicine, is reported to have performed a human blood transfusion as early as 1795. John Leacock, a later graduate, performed successful transfusion experiments, believing an infusion of blood would excite the recipient heart. Leacock's experiments in turn influenced James Blundell, who is credited with introducing the process to the mainstream medical community. Schmidt wonders if the Edinburgh community took particular interest in those early French transfusion experiments, planting the idea in Thornton's mind. Oddly, reanimation wasn't Thornton's only thwarted plan for Washington's body. Thornton secretly included a burial vault in his designs for the capital, hoping that it would be Washington's final resting place. After Washington's coffin was placed in the family vault, Martha did agree that he could be later removed to the capital on the grounds that her body could join his when she died. Alas, the transfer of burial chambers, like Zombie Washington himself, was not meant to be.
bleeding, Bert. My mouth's bleeding. Zuzu's petals. Zuzu. There they are. Bert, what do you know about that? Merry Christmas. Well, Merry Christmas. The following story comes from the www.todayifoundout.com website. Today I Found Out, It's a Wonderful Life, was based on a Christmas card short story by Philip Dandor and Stern, which was originally sent out to 200 of Stern's friends and family in December of 1943. The short story was called The Greatest Gift and was inspired by a dream Stern had one night in the 1930s. Stern, already an accomplished author at this point, albeit an historical author, then proceeded to write the 4,000-word short story about a man named George who was going to commit suicide by jumping off a bridge, but was stopped when someone happened by and struck up a conversation with him. The mysterious person eventually learns that George wishes he'd never been born and grants George his wish. George soon discovers that no one he knows recognises him and that many of the people he'd known were worse off in their lives because he had never existed. Most prominent among these was his little brother who had drowned because he had not been there to save him. George eventually gets the stranger to change everything back to the way it was and is now glad to be alive. Stern initially sought to find a publisher for his short 21-page story, but failed in this endeavour, so decided to make a Christmas card-style gift out of it and printed 200 copies, which he sent out to friends and family in December of 1943. This ended up being a gift that gave back, as the work eventually found its way into the hands of producer David Hempstead, who worked for RKO Pictures. RKO Pictures then paid Stern $10,000, or around $124,000 today, for the motion picture rights to the story, just four months after Stern had sent it out. Various adaptations were then written before the screenplay version of the story was sold to Frank Capra's production company in 1945, also for $10,000. Capra's company subsequently adapted the story further and ultimately made it into It's a Wonderful Life, which debuted in 1946. Interestingly, while the story was based on The Greatest Gift, the character of George Bailey was actually partly based on the founder of Bank America, A.P. Giannini. Giannini was also the inspiration for a similar character in Capra's American Madness. At the age of 14, Giannini left school and began working with his stepfather, Lorenzo Scatina, in the produce industry as a produce broker. By the time he was 31, he was able to sell much of his interest in the company to his employees and planned to retire. However, one year later he was asked to join the Columbus Savings and Loan Society, which was a small bank in North Beach, California. Once he joined up, he found that almost nobody at the Savings and Loan, nor other banks, were willing to give loans to anyone but the rich or those owning businesses. At first, Giannini attempted to convince the other directors at the Savings and Loan to start lending to working-class citizens to give them home and auto loans, among other things. He felt that working-class citizens, though lacking in assets to guarantee the loan against, were generally honest and would pay back their loans when they could. Further by loaning them money, it would allow working-class citizens to better themselves in ways they would not have been able to do without the money lent to them, such as being able to buy a home or to start a new business. He was never able to convince the other directors to begin lending to the working class, so he raised funds to start his own bank, the Bank of Italy, which later became the Bank of America. 
He then made a practice of not offering loans based on how much money or equity a person had, but based primarily on how he judged their character. Within a year, Bank of Italy had over $700,000 in deposits from these working-class individuals, which is somewhere around 15 to 20 million today. By the middle of the 1920s, it had become the third largest bank in the United States. Much like the fictitious George Bailey, Giannini kept little for himself through all this. Despite the fact that the bank he started was worth billions at the time of his death, Giannini's entire estate was valued at only $500,000 when he died at the age of 79 in 1949. He avoided acquiring great wealth as he felt it would cause him to lose touch with the working class. For much of his career he refused to pay for his work and when the board attempted to give him $1.5 million as a bonus one year, he gave it all away to the University of California stating, Money itch is a bad thing. I never had that trouble. And of course, as is normal with this website, a whole pile of bonus factoids. The Greatest Gift was eventually made into an actual published work in 1944, one year after Stern had sent it out as a Christmas present, being published in Reader's Scope magazine. One month later, it was also published in Good Housekeeping under the title The Man Who Was Never Born. Stern also managed to get it published in book form around this time, with illustrations for the story done by Raffaello Bassoni. When the motion picture rights of the story were first sold to RKO, Cary Grant had been slated to play the lead role of George. When Capra acquired the rights, Lionel Barrymore ended up being the one to convince Jimmy Stewart to take the part, even though he initially didn't want it, as it was too soon after he had returned from World War II. Jimmy Stewart rose to as high as a two-star general in the US military. In August of 1943, he found himself with the 703rd Bombardment Squadron, initially as a first officer and shortly thereafter as a captain. During combat operations over Germany, Stuart found himself promoted to the rank of Major. Stuart participated in several counted and uncounted missions on his orders into Nazi-occupied Europe flying his B-24 in the lead position of his group in order to inspire his troops. For his bravery during these missions, he twice received the Distinguished Flying Cross, three times received the Air Medal, and once received the Croix de Guerre from France. This latter medal was an award given by France and Belgium to individuals allied with themselves who distinguished themselves with acts of heroism. By July of 1944, Stuart was promoted Chief of Staff of the 2nd Combat Bombardment Wing of the 8th Air Force. Shortly thereafter, he was promoted to the rank of Colonel, becoming one of only a handful of American soldiers to ever rise from private to Colonel within a four-year span. After the war, Stuart was an active part of the United States Air Force Reserve, serving as a reserve commander of Dobbins Air Reserve Base. On July 24, 1959, he attained the rank of Brigadier General, a one-star general. He finally retired from the Air Force on May 31, 1968, after 27 years of service and was subsequently promoted to Major General, a two-star general. It's a Wonderful Life was the first film Jimmy Stewart did after serving in World War II. It came at a time when he was strongly considering quitting acting, as he didn't know if he'd be able to continue after his experiences in the war. On January 5, 1992, It's a Wonderful Life became the first American program ever to be broadcast on Russian television. It's a Wonderful Life was largely considered a flop after it was released, and partially due to this film's poor showing at the box office, Capra's production company went bankrupt, and Stewart began to further doubt his ability to act following the war. However, thanks to being considered a Christmas movie, which Capra himself claimed to be a surprise to him, as he didn't see it that way, the movie steadily gained momentum over the years, and today is considered one of the great classics in movie history. Stewart himself slated 
that It's a Wonderful Life became his favourite of all the movies he had done in his career. It's a Wonderful Life cost $3.7 million to make, about $44 million today, and only took in $3.3 million in its initial run in the theatres. This made it good enough for only the 26th best out of 400-plus gross take of American movies in 1947. Incidentally, it did beat out Miracle on 34th Street in 1947 for gross revenue, being one position ahead of it. While initially a flop with the public, It's a Wonderful Life was nominated for five Academy Awards, though it didn't win any. Today it's considered by the American Film Institute as one of the 100 greatest American films ever made. They also have it as the number one most inspirational American film of all time. In the scene in It's a Wonderful Life where Uncle Billy is drunk and leaving the party at George's house, the sound of him apparently running into some garbage bins and falling down is heard. In actuality, one of the crew members accidentally dropped some equipment after Uncle Billy walked out of the shot. Rather than break character, the actor who played Uncle Billy, Thomas Mitchell, shouted, I'm alright, I'm alright, and Jimmy Stewart also played along. The take was obviously the one that made it into the movie, despite the gaff. The stagehand that dropped the equipment was given a $10 bonus. Donna Reed really did manage to hit the window in the first take of the scene where she makes a wish and throws a rock at the window. Originally they had planned to have her throw it and then have a sharpshooter standing by to shoot the window at the appropriate moment to make it appear that the rock had broken it. This turned out not to be necessary as Reed had quite the throwing arm. Donna Reed grew up on a farm and on a bet from Lionel Barrymore demonstrated how to milk a cow on the set of It's a Wonderful Life. And finally, over his lifetime, Philip Van Doren Stern published over 40 books, mostly historical and many on the Civil War, to which he became one of the nation's leading scholars. At the beginning of the 19th century, the Port of London was the busiest in the world. Cargoes that had travelled thousands of miles and survived all the hazards of the sea piled up on the wharves of Rotherhithe, only for their owners to discover that the slowest, most frustrating portion of their journey often lay ahead of them. Consignments intended for the southern and most heavily populated parts of Britain had to be heaved onto creaking ox carts and hauled through the Docklands and across London Bridge, which had been built in the 12th century and was as cramped and impractical as its early date implied. By 1820, it had become the centre of the world's largest traffic jam. From the blogs.smithsonianmag.com website, The Epic Struggle to Tunnel Under the Thames. It was a situation intolerable to a city with London's pride, and it was clear that if private enterprise could build another crossing closer to the docks, there would be a tidy profit to be made in tolls. Another bridge was out of the question. It would deny sailing ships access to the Pool of London, and ambitious men turned their thoughts to driving a tunnel beneath the Thames instead. This was not such an obvious idea as it might appear. Although demand for coal was growing fast as the Industrial Revolution hit high gear, working methods remained primitive. Tunnels were dug by men wielding picks in sputtering candlelight. No engineers had tunnelled under a major river, and the Thames was an especially tricky river. To the north, London was built on a solid bed of clay, 
ideal tunnelling material. To the south and east, however, lay deeper strata of water-bearing sand, gravel and oozing quicksand, all broken up by layers of gravel, silt, petrified trees and the debris of ancient oyster beds. The ground was semi-liquid and at depth it became highly pressurised, threatening to burst into any construction site. Today, engineers deal with treacherous ground by pressurising their work faces, though that solution still leaves tunnellers vulnerable to the problems that come from working in high-pressure environments, including bone rot and even the bends. In the early 19th century, such measures were still decades away. The first men to attempt a tunnel beneath the Thames, gangs of Cornish miners brought to London in 1807 by businessmen banded together as the Thames Archway Company, had little to guide them. The chief engineer of this first tunnel project was a muscular giant named Richard Trevithick, a self-educated man who had progressed from youthful fame as a Cornish wrestler by displaying a dazzling talent for invention. Trevithick had harnessed steam power to drive the first self-propelled engine to run on rails and designed the world's first high-pressure steam engine. He was convinced that a tunnel could be hacked out under the Thames relatively easily. It did not take long for him to realise he was wrong. Trevithick's men made fine progress while tunnelling through London clay. But once they got under the Thames, they had constant trouble. Their pilot tunnel was just five feet high and three feet wide, and sewage-laden water seeped in from the river, 30 feet above their heads, at the rate of 20 gallons a minute. Within this narrow space, three miners worked on their knees, one hewing at the face with his pick, another clearing away the sodden earth, the third shoring up the drift with timbers. Working conditions during the six-hour shifts were appalling. The men were soaked with sweat and river water. No one could stand or stretch, and the tunnel was so poorly ventilated that the fetid air sometimes extinguished the candles. Nevertheless, the Cornishmen made progress, and by January 1808, Trevithick reported that his drift was within 140 feet of the north bank of the Thames, and that the pilot tunnel would be completed in a fortnight. Then things began to go disastrously wrong. The miners hit quicksand, then water, this time in such quantity that nothing could stop waterlogged soil from gushing into the driftway. The men at the face fled the shaft, just ahead of the flood. Correctly guessing that his tunnel had come too close to an unexpected depression in the bed of the Thames, Trevithick arranged for the hole to be plugged with large bags of clay dumped into the river. To the astonishment of his detractors, this seemingly desperate measure worked, and the tunnel was pumped dry. Within days, however, it flooded again, and this time the Thames Archway Company had had enough. Its funds were exhausted, its chief engineer was sick from exposure to the river water, and all its efforts had proved only that a passage under the river at Rotherhithe exceeded the limits of contemporary mining technology. At that time, the only machines used in mines were pumps. It took a man of genius to recognise that a different sort of machine was needed. A machine that could both prevent the roof and walls from collapsing and hold back any quicksand or water at the tunnel face. This man was Mark Brunnell an émigré who had fled his native France during the Revolution and quickly made a name for himself as one of the most prominent engineers in Britain. Brunel was a tiny eccentric man, impractical in his private life, but an intensely able innovator. His inventions which had brought him to the attention of men as illustrious as Tsar Nicholas I of Russia included machines for mass-producing cannonballs, embroidering fabric sawing wood and making ship's tackle. This last had cut the cost of producing rigging pulleys by 85%. After he secured a number of contracts to supply pulleys to the Royal Navy, the Frenchman found himself relatively wealthy, despite his lack of business acumen. 
Not long after the failure of the Thames Archway Company, Brunnell happened to be wandering through the Royal Dockyard at Chatham when he noticed a rotten piece of ship's timber lying on the quay. Examining the wood through a magnifying glass, he observed that it had been infested with the dreaded pteridoe, or shipworm, whose rasping jaws can riddle a wooden ship with holes. As it burrows, this worm, it's actually a mollusk, shoves pulped wood into its mouth and digests it, excreting a hard, brittle residue that lines the tunnel it has excavated and renders it safe from predators. Though he had no prior knowledge of or interest in the subject, Brunnell realised that the shipworm's burrowing technique could be adapted to produce an entirely new way of tunnelling. His insight led him to invent a device that has been used in one form or another in almost every major tunnel built during the last 180 years, the tunnelling shield. It consisted of a grid of iron frames that could be pressed against the tunnel face and supported on a set of horizontal wooden planks called polling boards that would prevent the face from collapsing. The frames were divided into 36 cells, each three feet wide and almost seven feet tall and arranged one on top of another on three levels. The whole machine was 21 feet tall and the working surface was 850 square feet, 68 times bigger than Trevithick's. The shield was propped by sturdy iron plates that formed a temporary roof and protected the miners as they worked. Instead of hewing away at a large and exposed surface, they would remove one polling board at a time and hack out a mailbox-shaped hole to a predetermined depth, say 9 inches. Then the board would be pushed into the hole and screwed back into place before the next one was removed and the whole process began again. When the miners in a cell had excavated the earth behind all of their boards, their frames could be laboriously jacked forward those nine inches. In this way, the whole 90-tonne tunnelling machine could move inexorably and safely on, while masons trailed behind, shoring up the newly exposed tunnel with bricks. The prospect of tunnelling beneath the Thames promised a lucrative test of Brunnell's new invention and he raised funds for the project through a public subscription. Soil samples were taken beneath the riverbed and Brunnell was advised to stick close to the muddy river bottom where he could expect clay, rather than risking striking quicksand by going deeper. When he began work on his tunnel in 1825, the shaft that was sunk in dingy Rotherhithe was only 42 feet deep and it was planned to pass within seven feet of the riverbed in places. The hazards of such an operation soon became apparent. Although the shield worked well and the miners dug, at first, through the predicted clay, water began to drip into the tunnel before the shaft had even begun to pass under the Thames. This influx was more of a nuisance than a real danger while the pump was working. But in the summer of 1826 it failed, and the whole shaft was soon flooded to a depth of 12 feet. From then on the project proved ever more difficult. Brunnell's machine could cope with the sodden mud and dry gravel that his miners encountered, nearly as well as clay, but he ran short of funds. The shaft was poorly drained and ventilated, and miners were poisoned by the polluted river water, or afflicted by illnesses ranging from diarrhoea and constant headaches to temporary blindness. Most of Brunnell's workers complained of feeling suffocated and tormented by temperatures that could plunge or rise by as much as 30 degrees Fahrenheit within an hour. One miner died of disease. In May of 1827, with the tunnel now well out into the river, the ground behind the polling boards became so liquid that it forced its way through the gaps between the boards. A gusher in one of the cells bowled the miner working in it head over heels. The rest of the 120 men working in the shield could not force their way into his frame in time to staunch the flow. Bitter-tasting, gurgling water rose rapidly and flooded the tunnel, sending all the miners scurrying for their ladders and the surface. 
Brunnell, like Trevor Thick, recognised that his tunnel had passed beneath a cavity in the riverbed, and he too solved his problem with bags of clay. Thousands containing a total of 20,000 cubic feet of earth were dumped into the river over the shield's position, and two weeks after the flood, his men began to pump the tunnel dry. It took four months, and when work was restarted in November, a highly publicised banquet for 50 guests was held in the tunnel. Thousands of visitors were permitted to enter the shaft and gaze at the wonderful tunnelling machine on payment of a penny a head. The tunnel's construction crew became news worldwide. Edward Lear, travelling through the mountains of Calabria, stopped for the night in a lonely monastery run by an abbot who informed his monks, England is a very small place, altogether about a third the size of Rome. The whole place is now divided into two equal parts by an arm of the sea, under which is a great tunnel, so that it is all like one piece of dry land. Work at the face began again in late 1827, but within months the shield was advancing through treacherous ground once more. Early in the morning of January 12, 1828, The miners in one of the top cells were hacking away when another unstoppable torrent of water flooded into the tunnel. Once again the men in the shield had to run for safety, but this time they had left it too late. Six miners were drowned. Just as serious for Brunnell, the cost of tipping another 4,500 bags of clay into the Thames to plug this latest hole in the riverbed exhausted his company's funds. With no new financing in the offing, the tunnel was pumped dry, the shield was bricked up and the tunnel abandoned. It took Brunnell and his supporters seven years to cajole the government into advancing a loan of £246,000 to allow work on this project of national importance to be completed. And despite the replacement of the old tunnelling shield with a new model, Better able to resist the pressure of the Thames as it swelled with each high tide, it took six more years of round-the-clock labour before the tunnel finally emerged at Wapping on August 12, 1841. Work on the 1,200-foot tunnel thus occupied 16 years and two months, an average rate of progress, allowing for the seven-year layoff, of only four inches a day a good measure of how sorely the project tested the technology of the day. Brunnell's triumph was only partial. Once again his company's funds were at a low ebb, and tens of thousands of penny-ahead visitors hardly paid the interest on the government loan. There was never enough to complete the approaches to the tunnel and make it accessible to horse-drawn vehicles as intended. Instead, the passageways were filled with souvenir sellers by day, and the city's homeless at night. For a penny toll, vagrants could bed down under Brunnell's arches in what became known as the Hades Hotel. It was only when the Underground Railway came to London in the 1860s that the Thames Tunnel achieved a measure of real usefulness. Purchased by the East London Railway in 1869, it was found to be in such excellent condition that it was immediately pressed into service carrying steam-driven trains, at first along the Brighton line and later from Wapping to Newcross. The tunnel became and remains part of the London Underground Network. It is a tribute to Trevor Thick and Brunnell and mute testimony to the difficulties of tunnelling in London that it remained the only subway line so far to the east until the opening of the Jubilee Line extension in 1999.
The music for today's podcast came from the musicalley.com website. The bandwidth is provided by TalkShoe at www.talkshoe.com. I'd also like to say thank you to all of those people who have provided feedback for the show, be it via email or through comments made in places like iTunes or Podcast Alley. Much appreciated, everyone. And also I'd like to say a big thank you to Darren Ludlam, Trevor Rowe, uh, Vision Points, thank you Kelly, Lance Rinkasik, hope I said that correctly, Lance, Adam Chapman, and Eric Broomfield. Thank you everyone for making a donation to the podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated. And remember, if you do make a donation to the podcast, in return I'll send you the links to the extended versions of the Origins and Mysteries Abound podcasts. And for those of you who use the podcast to help you sleep, a rendition of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star by Music for Deep Sleep. And for those of you who found the story in the last podcast about the binding of girls' feet in China a little bit disturbing, it may have made you feel a little squeamish, well, here's another. And I felt that this story would go quite nicely with Twinkle Twinkle little star from the news.yahoo.com website an article by Rachel Rittner maggots clean wounds faster than surgeons the idea of putting maggots into open flesh may sound repulsive but such a therapy might be a quick way to clean wounds a new study from France suggests Men in the study, all of whom had wounds that wouldn't heal, were randomly assigned to have dead and unhealthy tissue removed from their lacerations by either standard surgical therapy or maggots that eat dead tissue. After about a week, men who received the maggot therapy had less dead tissue in their wounds than men who underwent surgery, the researchers said. However, after two weeks, the immature insects had lost their advantage. Both groups had about an equal amount of dead tissue in their wounds, and in the end, the maggots did not help the wounds heal faster. Although the effects of maggot therapy were not dramatic, it may be useful in certain cases, such as in patients with diabetes whose wounds need rapid control, the researchers said but continuing the maggot therapy beyond one week is not of benefit, they said. Medical use of maggots was approved in 2004 by the US Food and Drug Administration. However, only a small minority of patients with unhealing wounds received the treatment, said Dr Robert Kirsner, a dermatologist at the University of Miami School of Medicine, who was not involved in the study. The study included about 100 men with wounds on their lower limbs. About half received maggot therapy and half received surgical treatment. For the maggot therapy, sterile maggots were placed in a small pouch that was placed on top of the wound. The therapy was applied twice a week for two weeks. Neither the patients nor the doctor evaluating the wounds knew which therapy a patient received. Patients wore a blindfold when their bandages were changed. After eight days, the percentage of dead tissue in the wounds of patients who received the maggot therapy was 54.5%, compared with 66.5% in patients who received surgery. But after 15 days and 30 days, the amount of dead tissue in the wounds was about the same for both groups. The number of patients who reported feeling a crawling sensation in their wound and the number reporting pain was also about the same in both groups, according to the study, which was conducted by researchers at the University Hospital Centre of Caen in France. 
Maggots secrete an enzyme that dissolves dead tissue but leaves healthy tissue alone, Kirstner said. Although there are a few risks to the treatment, there is a gross factor to it, Kirstner said. Patients have to be very psychologically strong, he said. Another group of patients that may benefit from the therapy are those who cannot undergo surgery, for instance, if they cannot receive anaesthesia, Kirstner said. Future research should determine whether the effects of maggot therapy can be improved by using more maggots and whether an increase in the number of critters would be painful, the researchers said. So now you're calm, relaxed, sitting in your car, sitting in an armchair, lying in bed listening to the podcast. All of a sudden you feel this crawling, itching sensation somewhere on your body. Just be careful if you need to scratch. Bye for now, everyone. Oh, jeez, i got an itch. <laughs>